Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Episode number 101 Iron Man Lake Placid with Kevin Smith. Welcome to the Pursuit of the Perfect Race. I'm Coach Terry Wilson, and with each episode, I bring stories of athletes to you that share their experiences at races in order for you to learn how to have your perfect race. We'll hear stories from athletes of all ages, abilities, and races of all distances. So regardless of where you fit in, there's something in there for you. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the pursuit begin. Welcome back to the Pursuit of the Perfect Race. Today I have the pleasure of talking with my friend Kevin Smith about his recent race at Ironman Lake Placid in beautiful upstate New York where he had a time of 14 hours, 3 minutes, 39 seconds. Kevin has been doing triathlons for the past 18 years with his first one being on a dare where he nearly drowned. This was his fourth full distance triathlon. This race took place on July 22nd, 2018. The temperature on race day was 46 and rose to 79 with the water being 74 degrees. Also notable to mention about this year's race at Lake Placid was it was pouring rain with some hail on the bike ride. Welcome to the show, Kevin. I look forward to hearing about your race experience at beautiful Lake Placid. Awesome. Awesome. Glad to be here. Awesome. So why did you register for this race? You took a hiatus from the full distance for quite some time, and you came back to it. Why this race and why now? Yeah, that's a great question. I had actually said to my wife on a Monday, before I registered. I'm done with the long course stuff. I was really getting into doing short course, Olympic distance, uh, just with my travel constraints and my schedule. It's crazy to find time to get all those long rides and runs in. The next day, a friend of mine calls me and says, hey, I want to do Lake Placid. It's my 50th birthday. And, you know, I, I want somebody to train with. And I just met the guy a few months previous. We'd be doing a little riding together. I was like, okay. So I, I signed up and he bails. Like around December, he, uh, he completely bails. He said his foot hurt. I don't know. But I'm in it, and uh, I had some. I tried to sign up for Placid. Actually, I signed up twice in the last six years, and I kept getting hurt. That was a big reason I gravitated away from some of the longer stuff. And you know, I said, you know what, I'm going to do it. And uh, I started training, and uh, I, I love training. It's fun. I, I love spending time on my bike. However, I much prefer to be going at 300 watts than the uh, the 200 aerobic watts that you require for something like Placid. It's kind of more more of my suit, but. Uh, you know, I, I, I wanted to complete the darn thing. I haven't I haven't done one in 10 years, and I'm 10 years older now, and my body feels a little different, so I wanted to see if I could get through it. Okay. Now, how is your training going into this race? You know what? Um, I felt good. I did the Montremblant, the 70.3, a month before, and a lot of my numbers were uh, right where they were 10 years ago. So I felt really good going into it. I, had, I did all my training indoors. All my long rides I did on uh, Trainer Road. 
So uh, I had five, five and a half hour rides sitting in the basement, which are mind numbing, but very efficient. I uh, got outside a little bit for some of the harder stuff. Got a lot, had probably five or six 20 mile runs. So I went into it feeling, uh, feeling really good. And, uh, you know, as, as we'll probably hear, I had some, some mechanical debacles, uh, throughout the day that turned what was supposed to be a race into a, Hey, let's just finish this sucker and get some points, but, uh, still worth it. Okay. Now what kind of plan did you use? Uh, so I used the, uh, the trainer road mid volume plan and I tweaked it some. For the most part, I followed the weekend stuff, all the long stuff I did. Some of the longer things during the week, you know, the, the two and a half hour rides on a Thursday night, really hard for me because I'm getting home at eight, eight or nine o'clock from being out in the field all week. So I would tweak that and uh, add some intensity, uh, did a lot of brick work that on that day. So uh, for the most part, I hit everything, but some of the longer stuff during the week I had to, I had to uh, alter. But it seemed to work fine. I felt like my conditioning was good. Um had I not had the mechanicals on the bike where I basically lost the ability to shift gears for 90 miles of the ride, which meant I had to work a lot harder going up some of the hills. And uh, on some of the flats, I it was kind of an odd situation. My, my ETAP just completely shorted out in the rain, which it's not supposed to do. It's been wet, but it was my day, I guess. So I had some uh, – I worked a little harder on the bike, and it cost me some on the run. But uh, other than that, I felt like, you know, I could have done 11 and a half, 12 hours, but this wasn't to be that day. Okay. Now – this plan for trainer road, does it include swimming and run workouts as well? It does. Nice. It, I did not yeah. know that. They, they, you know, they amended that about, uh, it's definitely a bike heavy plan. So that's where you get some really precise instruction. The, the swim and the running it's, it's RPE, which is not bad. Uh, you know, I've used some of the, I've always been self-coached. Um, I've used some of the Joe Friel stuff, which, uh, is based on uh, pace and, and things like that. And, that, that that's that's pretty nice and i felt like that was effective uh, with the trainer road the swimming and the running was just it's a little bit easier to plan for okay you know uh yeah now what was your longest swim bike and runs going into lake placid uh i biked five and a half hours on the trainer indoors at, at in erg mode at between anywhere between 200 and 230 watts Longest run was 21, and I did probably two or three of those, and my longest swim was 40, 4,500 yards. Okay. Your your long runs, was the 21 miles all at one point? Yeah. I, I broke it up a little bit, but, I, you know, it really depended on what kind of time I had. So I probably had three or four where I ran 13 or 14 in the morning, uh, went for an easy ride after that, and got off my feet for a few hours, and I went back out and ran another five or six, but then I actually had two or three that were just 21 mile runs. Okay. Now those long runs that were all 21 at one time, was that right off of a previous day's long ride or was there a day in between the long ride and the run? No, it was right off the previous day. Uh, The way the plan worked, it kind of alternated big volume weekends. So one weekend you would have a big volume bike ride, you know, five, five and a half hours, uh, Shorter run that afternoon, maybe five, six miles, but very, you know, RPE four. Then the next day you get up and do your, uh, do a long swim. And I would transition directly to that, uh, that three hour run. Following weekend, it would be more of a long break. Let's get on the bike for three, four hours at uh, a race pace, sometimes a little bit higher and then hop off and run for an hour, hour and a half. I think that that culminated in a four hour ride and a, I had a 10 mile run right after that, probably about three weeks out from Placid. Okay. So were you doing a lot of bricks in training? Yeah. Yeah. I tried to brick as much as I could, uh, at least, uh, at least one a week on uh, some of the weeks where, uh, 
the volume was a little bit less, I, I would jump off and run an extra two or three miles. It's always kind of, it's always kind of helped me to get off and transition run. Just uh, running's the hardest part anyway, because uh, most injury, I think that you can get a lot of bang for your buck hopping off and running three miles versus resting for five or six hours and then trying to go run seven or eight. That but uh, I, I've alternated it quite a bit. And uh, the run is where I've had injuries in the past. So uh, I was really cognizant of that. So I listened to my body and, you know, if it meant run slower or, or bag the run, I would. I didn't bag too many runs, so I tried to get out and do something. Okay. When you're running outside or being that you travel quite a bit for work, are you using a road ID? Got it on right now. Awesome. I road ID and I, I use the live track feature on my Garmin as well. So uh, okay. that way all my wife knows where I was. <laughs> was. Yeah. Where I was, yeah. Well, good. I'm really glad that you're using that feature. Good. Now, what workouts did you do in training that gave you the confidence to go into Lake Placer prepared, knowing that it's going to be a hilly bike course and a hilly run? So, uh, workout-wise, I mean, I I did a lot of high-volume stuff at prescribed intensities, which I think makes a big difference. If you're training with power, I think I live in a flat part of the country. Western New York, Buffalo is, we have some hilly parts, but they're they're well south, and I, I hate putting my car in the bike to drive an hour to go train. So uh, I, when I was outdoors, I rode a lot on flat courses, but most of my training was indoors. So I would do a lot of prescribed intensity, a lot of intervals at prescribed power. I did a lot of long swift rides, climbing, um, you know, the, the island, uh, I guess the, uh, the Watopia mountain. Uh, I guess I climbed that three or four times in one session. So I was on the bike for about four and a half hours. I would go up, go down, then I turn around and go back up. And honestly, that, that the hills were fine. Even with the inability to change gears, uh, I got up the hills okay. So I think if I would have had, you know, an extra gear or two, it would have been an even more efficient day. Okay. So before we start getting into the actual race here, what cassette are you using? You know, I ran an 1128, and I, okay. I had the Vermont from Blonde and kept it for Placid, but I ran a standard uh, 5339 in the front. Okay. Just so we can all be on the same page, and thankfully yeah. you're a little gear-oriented, and you understand what I'm asking there. Yeah. Now, did you get injured at all in training in the previous six months going into Placid? You know what? Um, I, I was pretty lucky. The only thing I did, and, and this is, you know, I think it's typical me, the week before, really the Tuesday night before the race, I was in a hotel, and then being Mr. Overachiever, I took my foam roller. It's race week, so you're not going to get any faster, but you can sure get slower. So I was trying to stay loose put the uh, foam roller on the floor and I rolled my hamstring. My hamstring popped. It was audible. I heard it and I I freaked out. It's Tuesday night. I've got a good, I got two good friends that are triathletes. One's an athletic trainer. One is a physical therapist. I was on the phone with those guys up until the race. Like, what should I do? Am I going to be okay? And they were both like, well, I don't know. You weren't running when it happened. So it's probably okay. I said, does it hurt? I said, yeah, it hurts. So I really, wasn't sure what the day was going to bring. So I, I, I did some releases on it. You know, I, I would stretch it and, and roll it lightly and just try and get some of that scar tissue loose. And they felt that maybe it was scar tissue that was popping. But uh, it, it hurt a little bit during the race, but honestly, not, not bad. It got hit once in the swim and I felt it. And on the run at one point, I felt it. But let's face it, 20 miles. Were you going the- up or down a hill at that point or were you on a flat? I was going, uh, starting up a hill, Okay. Starting up a hill, which make kind of makes sense a little bit, but, um, you know, at mile 20, I kind of think everything hurts on the runs, but it it, it, it may not have even been the hamstring, but everything hurt. I felt the hamstring, but it really wasn't that big of an issue. And I, I was concerned going in. I was like, here we go. You know, another injury plagued, uh, attempt. So, okay. Now how many hours a week did your training max out at? You know, I I think I got up to 17 for a lot of, 
I told myself I wouldn't do that again. And But, you know, when you start adding everything up, I mean, I was getting 12 on the weekend. So if you're doing anything at all during the week, you're, you're you know, 15, 16, 17. And that was pretty much from May forward. I, I think every week, except for the every every fourth week was kind of a, a lower volume week, a little more intensity, kind of a testing week. I think I was 15, 16 hours plus. So Okay. Now, were there any days during your buildup that you just mentally didn't want to train? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I think a lot of it was due to the indoor nature of what I was doing. It's I don't mind to run for three hours. It's kind of but when you get up Saturday morning and, and you're faced with a five hour indoor ride on your bike. Um, that's a little daunting. Uh, it was good. I had some company. I had some friends that were training for other races that were following the same plan. And we would hook up through an app called Discord. What is that called now? Discord. What is and, it? Uh, it's just uh, it's a voice channel app, and you can create a channel. And we started out the the winter doing long swift rides, just base miles, and we would all log in at the same time, ride the course together, and chat. And these were guys that I used to train with when I lived in the south. They're still down there. And then as we transitioned into the more structured stuff that Trainer Road offers, uh, we for the most part we would do these long rides together. Now they live in warmer areas than me, so they got outside a little quicker than I did. And uh, once our race schedule started to diverge a little bit, I found myself kind of by myself on those rides. And that's when it really got old. But, uh, you know, it's convenient. You can pack all your nutrition right there on the table beside you. Um, if you got to use the bathroom, you can just you hop off and go it's to the bathroom. It's, it's right down the hall. Yeah, it's refilling bottles if you need to. It's, it's, you know, it's a minute, minute and a half versus finding the gas station and you're in there for 15, 20 minutes. So it. A five-hour ride really took about five hours, whereas outdoors, you know, five hours of ride takes a little bit longer, and there's no coasting indoors either. Right. You're you're working. You're working the whole time. Now, when so, you're not training, racing, or traveling for work, what are you doing? I know you do work about, what, 70 hours a week, you said? Uh, yeah, it gets up there. You count the travel, yeah, it's it's, it's right there. Um, but, you know, I, I honestly, I'm always training for something that's what i like to do okay my wife and i will we go on vacation we'll we'll go hiking we're not big sit at the beach people we'll we'll go switzerland hike in the alps or we'll we'll go to like one of the national parks in the states yosemite yellowstone and, and, and spend a week there we like to be outdoors so we're always active but uh, I'm, I'm always on my bike so that's probably my my downfall my swimming could be a lot better if i would swim year round but it seems it's uh it's race uh necessary i, I get in shape to race but then i'd much rather be riding in the off right do you i know you said you have a family right uh just my wife and i so no kids no kids no kids no, kids, no dogs nice like now how big of an issue was balancing life work and training you had mentioned something about you told your wife you weren't going to be doing long course stuff anymore and then you did you know what it was better this time for, for, and I guess I hit the perfect storm. So on the weekend, my wife's a personal trainer. So okay. he actually would be coaching Saturday morning from 7am to noon and Sunday morning from 7am. noon. So I've got a five hour block to get my long stuff in. And, and so for the most part, it was okay. During the week, I used my hotel time wisely. I mean, it's not uncommon for me to be down at the pool in the hotel or on the treadmill at nine or 10 o'clock, uh, whenever I get a window. So that really didn't need into any time. So, this was probably the first time since I've been racing any kind of long course stuff that it really wasn't that much of an imposition for her. Uh, a little bit of travel for the races this year. I mean, the last four or five years I've raced locally in Buffalo, the longest drive being an hour and a half, you know, maybe to, to Rochester or Watkins Glen, New York. But uh, so we had a seven hour drive to Montreux and Placid with about six 
and you're gone for a while for those. So that was a little bit different. She was a trooper, but uh, for the most part, pretty manageable. Okay. Now, with this race schedule that you developed, Mm -hmm. how much of the time management skills did you have to employ to get to where you are at this point in your athletic endurance pursuit? I think it's all time management. I mean, you got to be disciplined to do the work, but I think time management is what derails a lot of people. Right. You know, for, for me, so I, I learned that in college. I was a, a college athlete. I played football in college and it was, it was a job. You know, we, we started at, at six in the morning and then went till nine o'clock at night. And every minute was a lot was accounted for. And if you couldn't manage your time and, and find time to study, find time to train, find time to watch film, you weren't going to play and you weren't going to get your degree. So I had to learn at a pretty early age. And as I've transitioned into professional life with the job I do now, there's just no way I could do it if I couldn't budget time and prioritize things. And I, I think that there's definitely pitfalls there. I, like, a doubt. I, like, I really like what you just said. You said budget time. Oh, budget. you got to put it in your planner. You got to put it in your time. Like you need to know, Hey, look, this isn't like just, willy-nilly putting time wherever you want it to and just putting training wherever you want it to. No, every training has a block and it's going to be prioritized and work is the same priority level as everything else. Everything is the same priority in the sense and you have to spend everything accordingly. Yeah. I I really like that. I think that's, if you don't, I mean, that's one of the biggest excuses I think that, that, that prevents people from achieving any kind of fitness goal. If you hear people that, that want to get in the better shape, I can't find time. And and that's kind of a fallacy, right? I mean, you have to make time for things that are important. If it's important, you'll make time for it. Kind of my backstory, I was almost a 300-pound offensive lineman in college. So, you know, right now I'm 6'4", 203 or 4 pounds. When I was 12, I was 6'3", 203 or 4 pounds. So I was always a really large kid. Then I got to college and I was, I was heavy. And I, I wasn't too heavy, but, you know, there's really not a – a lot of reasons to be 300 pounds in adult life. I don't need to push people around anymore, not too often, which is a good thing because I get broken in half now if I try. But um, for me, well, if it's a long run, uh, <laughs> you know, when I see my teammates uh, at reunions and things, the first thing they say is, wow, you look like a wide receiver. And it's like, well, you know, the problem is I, I still run like an offensive lineman. I'm just slow for longer. So, um, but no, I, it's, um, I, I dropped a lot of weight and I, I made time for it. You know, I just decided that there, it was healthier, you know, high blood pressure runs in my family. My, my, I've had several family members with heart procedures and bypass surgeries and didn't want to go that route, man. So I made it a priority and I started out running. I dropped weight quickly and then I didn't get into the try thing until probably six, seven years after I dropped all my weight. So it's just been a nice way. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. Judy. <laughs> 
Chumba. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. To stay in shape and, and, and compete. I really miss the competition aspect that I had in football. And, and tries, you, you definitely get that, regardless of the distance that you're doing. Is the high blood pressure and health problems part of your overall reason why you're active as much? I, I'm, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I was I was kind of a, a sports medicine major in college, so I learned a lot about it. And at the time, it was just something that interested me. Then my father had some of those cardiac issues. Uh, I had a, an uncle whom I was very close to that passed away about, gosh, eight, nine years ago, as same kind of issues. So my, my family's always been a big family, right? It's, it's, it's a, from a little town in Virginia. They live and die by their high school sports. Football typically is the, the primary leader there. So my family's all a bunch of big people. And, you know, uh, they, there's not a lot of, lot of endurance athletes in my family. In fact, I'm the only one. And I'm, they still think I'm crazy, uh, probably in to some degree. But uh, for me, it was important that I didn't want to be on medication my whole life for that kind of stuff. I mean, I wanted to be able to shop at the mall. I mean, my, my jacket size in college was a 56 long. So it's kind of hard to find that. If you're going to wear a suit every day to work, which luckily in my job I have now, I don't have to, but I've had to do that in the past. And it's tough to shop for that. So that was a big driver. But um, I also like the competition thing. You know, I remember when I first got in, I was running still, but I hadn't been doing tries. And I said, you know, I wonder what these Ironman races are like. And I, I looked up a training plan for one. I was like, oh, those guys are crazy. I'm not going to do that. And then lo and behold, like five years later, I, I started my first one. And, it, you know, when they're addictive. So you, you keep coming back at some point. So uh, it's a little bit of everything. That makes sense. Now, when did you start traveling to the race venue? We're going to shift gears from training sure. to actually start talking about when did you start traveling to the race? Yeah. So um, I left on a Thursday. I took, um, I worked Monday to Wednesday, was in the field actually in a hotel on Tuesday night when I had the aforementioned pop on the scar tissue. So we got into Saranac Lake on Thursday evening and uh, I have some family there. So we stayed with them. We stayed about 15, 20 minutes out from Placid, which actually turned out to be really nice. So we had to hang out in, weren't involved in all the craziness downtown, could get away and just kind of relax and get off my feet. So you didn't have a lodging expense. Right. No lodging expense. Uh, just really had to drive there. Uh, so a tank of gas each way, basically. And then we bought uh, food for the house and our host. We took them out to dinner every night because that's the least we could do. So we, in terms of what race travel can cost, we got off pretty easy. Especially for this race. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, some of the hotels were 450 a night with a five-night minimum. Yep. The city of Lake Placid apparently actually has that in their city commerce uh, for that week. Wow. So they make it a five-night minimum. Well, and I I think a lot of people, uh, they pay it, right? I mean, they've got a great venue. It is a great course. but uh, They really have people by the undercarriage on this race because there's nowhere else to stay. Right. There's Airbnbs, but those are just as much, if not more. They are. And they want, uh, that's that's really tough too, because we, we actually booked uh, VRBO at Montremblant. And I started working on that race like the day after it happened last year. And what I found was that a lot of the, the property owners weren't updating their prices. So if you're trying to get in early for one of these things, and these things sell out, a lot of them still sell out pretty quickly. Like Placid probably going to sell out really quickly. Uh, maybe it sold out today, I don't know. But um, they don't update their prices until it might be 
you know, November. So yeah, I was sending, rush. no, and I was sending requests to people all over the place for, before we even thought about my wife's cousin living in Saranac. And I kept getting responses. We'll get back to you. We haven't set our prices. We'll get back to you. And I'm, I'm that, that whole time prioritization thing. I said, no, I want to get this done now. It was really frustrating. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a little bit different. It's not necessarily the smoothest process you envision. Okay. Shifting gears a little bit to talk about your training again, being that we've already talked a little bit. What was your taper like going into this race? Um, so I did my last long brick two weeks out. So I did a four-hour ride and a 10-mile run. And then after that, I started uh, – I, uh, I took a Monday off, and then every everything was – I would do my swims kind of independently. I mean, I'd swim maybe a couple thousand yards, 2,500 yards with a little bit of intensity. But the bike runs were always bricks, and it was it was short but intense. And then they, they kind of tapered down a little bit further as I went along. So Wednesday, I think, but actually, you know what? The week of the race after I popped that hamstring, I didn't do anything other than swim a little bit. But up until that point, it'd be, you know, hour and a half ride, hour ride, 30-minute run, then two days later, 50-minute ride, 20-minute run with three or four one-minute uh, bike intervals at race pace. And I think race pace was defined as the highest perceived power you will you will exert. So if you think you're both the hills at 260 watts, do a minute at 260. Uh, the run was just race pace and, you know, Ironman race pace, unless you're Chris or some of the other guys on the team that can be nicknamed Speedy. Uh, my, my Ironman race pace, I was hoping for, you know, 8.45, nine minutes a mile, so. Gotcha. No, no, no real intervals there. So. All right. So now that we talked about that, let's go ahead and talk about the venue a little bit more here. How was the check-in process at the village? Uh, check-in was great. I went late in the day on the last day. So ended at 5 o'clock. I rolled in at 4.30. Not a soul. I was in and out of there, and it took longer to find parking. It really did. I learned my lesson at the previous race in Canada up in Montreal where it took hours. Uh, the, the bike check-in process was a little rocky. Right, so they're they had uh, they do a great job in organizing these things. I'm always amazed at how well organized they are when you have so many people and so many spectators. But the bike check in, there was the athlete meeting on the last day on the Saturday was at two, so I think a lot of people felt like, okay, I'll go to the, the meeting at two and I'll drop my bike off. So the line to drop the bike off was probably 100, 150, and they weren't necessarily moving us through the line that quickly. So that probably took by the time I got in line, that probably took 45 minutes just to get up until you were into the transition area. They could have probably smoothed that out, but, you know, it's, it's not the biggest town. Either, so you can't shut the street down. Wow, that's crazy. I mean, because all you're doing is saying, all right, do you have your bracelet on? Are there numbers on your bike? All right, come on in. Yeah. Like, And that's the biggest thing because I volunteered at Ironman Texas this year, and this guy came in. We took his bike. He didn't have any numbers on his bike. None. What do we do with his bike? That's the question. Like, if yeah. you don't have numbers on your bike and a fool where they take your bike for you and you don't put it on the rack, they don't know where to put it. So, and I, I you know, I was talking about that with some of the volunteers, and, and I think there was a little bit of miscommunication between the Ironman officials and, and some of the Lake Placid volunteers. Because when you check in and get your bike number, they proactively tell you, hey, this just needs to be on both sides of your, of your, of your seat post of your bike. You can cut this as long as the number is visible on both sides. Yep. Well, so that's what I did because who wants that thing flapping around in, in the wind? Well, what they didn't tell you, which is kind of a key piece of information, is you know on the number itself it says Lake Placid on it. Well, you can cut off. You know they, they don't tell you that's got to be on there and visible. 
So everybody cut that off. You just, a lot of people just had the number visible, no Lake Placid. And they were really pushing people to go get in a different line and have somebody cut just that Lake Placid part so they could stick that on the bike. And, and the question there is, so what's the idea there? And the response we got was interesting. They said, well, if the motorcycle guy comes up beside you and he, he sees your number, he's not going to know whether you're doing Lake Placid or not. I said, but I'll be on the Lake Placid course with numbers on my bike. <laughs> I, I see your confusion there. And to clarify, yeah. so again, yeah. I volunteered at Ironman Texas. There yeah. was a bandit on the course, believe it or not. Okay. So somebody came I in. See that. It was a little punk kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, I say little punk kid. He's probably in his 20s, or yeah. early 20s. When you're in he 40s. Came, he came in uh, the bike and we took his bike like everybody else, oh. right? And yeah. he's sitting there looking at us or looking at the volunteers like, what are you doing with my bike? And we're saying, go, keep going, keep going, you know, just like everybody else. Go that way. Go get your run bag. Go run a marathon. And he doesn't have clip-on shoes. There's no numbers on his bike. He doesn't have a bracelet on. There's no number on his helmet. There's no numbers on his arm. He isn't wearing a triathlon watch. There's no bike computer. There's no power meter. This bike looks like it was from Walmart. And we started looking at it, and he started saying, I just need my bike so I can go. And... Godfather, looking back on it, like after this already happened and we already let him go, he's like, you know, we should have said, if you want your bike back, show me your driver's license. That's all we want. We want to see your driver's license. We're going to take a picture of that and we're going to put in our system for non-register for life. Yeah. And like they have the authority to do that. And And that makes sense. They don't care. Like one offense, you're done. You know, they were, and they were taking pictures of the bike. So when you checked it in, they wheeled your bike up, and, and that made a lot of sense to me. Like, the, your numbers had to be on it. They took a picture. I, I kind of – there's probably a really good reason to have Lake Placid on the side of your bike. I, I didn't think the reason they gave me made a lot of sense because you've got the bracelet on. You've got the thing on your helmet. Um, I don't know. you got the chip on unless you forget your chip. So – but that, that really did slow the process down because there was a almost – I would say 45 to 50% of the people online had to go get – the guy to cut off the Lake Placid off of other stickers, and we had to stick that on our seat post. And they were actually ran out of stickers. Wow. Uh, you know, it, it's a small thing, but uh, you, you kind of you expect registration to be hectic. It's you know, the day before, though. You, you'd love not to be on your feet for twentieth year anniversary. Yeah, you would think. Yeah, but the volunteers were—they were great. They were really good. They did a good job. I think they were better last year, though. Just in my. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Sure they were. Sure they were. <laughs> so you get done with the check-in process. You get your bike in there. Are you doing anything special to your bike that is out of the ordinary that beginners or first-timers don't know? I mean, obviously, you need to bring a pair of scissors. Yep. So that way you can cut the stickers. Put them. Yep. On. You know. Um, yeah, I, I don't do a lot different to my bike. I, I really don't try to introduce anything differently. That, that I haven't trained with. And that's kind of a cliche, but it's so true, right? So the only thing I bring with me is uh, I run a disc wheel on the back. And, and instead of buying those neat little covers for the inflator that covers the wheel, you know, I, I get like clear tape, like packing tape. And I take scissors down or take the tape and I, I inflate my tire and I cover the hole so I don't have air flowing into the disc. But uh, not really. I mean, I, if, you're, if you're doing special stuff to your bike, you know, 20 hours before you race. Yeah, it's probably not good. Gotcha. Yeah. So after you get your bike checked in, you're going out to eat to get something to eat. What are you getting to eat? 
Uh, we went back and actually uh, ordered uh, a little bit of pasta from uh, a local place in Saranac. So I had like a linguine dish with, I think, some shrimp, uh, you know, nothing crazy. Really, the big meal that morning was was breakfast and I had to eat a lunch. But I found if I eat a ton at night, uh, you know, the, the whole, you hear about the carbo load. And I used to do that, but you're so full that it's hard to go to sleep. And it's hard enough to go to sleep anyway, so... The last thing I want to do is be bloated all night. So I usually eat a sensible dinner with some carbs, some protein, a little bit of fat. But uh, most of that part, that week of the race where you're jacking up your salt content a little bit, a little few more carbs, and then the morning of uh, the morning before, have a big breakfast. Okay. Now you can go ahead. No, I, you know I know people eat pancakes. For me, I uh, I had probably a couple of bagels with peanut butter and banana. I had a couple of bowls of cereal, which is really a characteristic for me, but then that's an out of characteristic weekend too. You a little bit different. Okay. Yeah. Now, how much sleep do you think you actually got the day before the race or the night before the race? I did okay on this one. Um, I, I think, so I laid down, finishing dinner around 6.30, hung out for a bit, stretched, and I got in, I laid down in the bed at 8.30. I wasn't tired yet, so I turned on, uh, I have a TV app on my iPad, and I, I turned on Direct TV and started watching. Uh, you know, Caddyshack was on. Like, oh, great, right? So I, I actually watched. Uh, I had Caddyshack on, and I, I kind of fell fell asleep watching Caddyshack. So I, I probably fell asleep by like nine o'clock, and I woke up at four. And I think I only woke up once or twice. So I probably got six and a half, seven hours. Which the night before, I'll take that. And I probably got nine. Be- you know, the night before. They say the night before. The night before. Yep. It's when you've really gotta gotta dial that in. Okay, so you wake up on race day morning. Yeah. You got your sleep. Mm-hmm. What is your race day morning ritual like before you leave where you're staying? Uh, okay, so coffee. coffee. First thing, get up, get some coffee. Um, for me, the pre-race meal, I, I do really well with a bagel and some peanut butter and maybe a banana. I mean, I, I don't go crazy. I don't, you know, just enough to keep me from getting hungry um, that morning, but also something that's pretty easily digestible, uh, a little bit higher like a bagel your body can burn through. It doesn't require a lot of energy to digest it. Not a lot of fiber. So uh, that works well for me. And eat that and uh, grab my stuff, which a lot of my stuff's in the car already. I'll hop in the car and then, you know, start to drive to the race site, which for us was about, I guess it was about 18 minutes that time of morning. Okay. Did you hear a lot of traffic? It was not too bad. I mean, Saranac's kind of a popular place for some people to stay. I mean, I think most people want to stay in Placid because you wake up in your hotel, you walk to the venue, and that would have been nice. But, um, cost a little bit more, cost a little bit more. And, you know, we have to stay with some friends. We actually had a house versus a hotel room, which is definitely nice. We get to cook a little bit, but, uh, there, there were some cars on the road, but everybody going to the race site. So it wasn't bad. Uh, we parking's always kind of, you know, the biggest stressor where we're going to park. How am I going to get to the race site? And, right. uh, had uh I had my, I had my, I had my, I had my wife, but you know, we, we got caught up in the, we got herded into a lot. And it wasn't where we intended to go. Like she had a cooler packed and everything, and I don't think she got back to the cooler that day. But it worked out. It was about a mile from the oval, and uh, we hopped on a shuttle. So I was out of transition. All my, you know, my all my Gatorade and stuff in my in my bottles and my Cliff bars and my bento box tires checked. I was out of transition at I think it closed at six, and I was out at five, probably five thirty-five. Okay, so you so, take that half mile walk down to Mirror Lake. Yep, yeah, uh, went down to Mirror Lake. Got a you know got a little swim. Uh, not not too much of one. Um, like a bonehead, I was one of those boneheads I mentioned earlier that left my chip in the hotel, so I had to go get a new chip. 
Uh, so I, I played rookie 101 a bit. Um, but uh, minor thing, it's, you know, I was glad to know when I got to the 10, I wasn't the only one. So the guy was like, don't panic. You're like the 25th guy who got to come through without their chip. So uh, got that taken care of. I got in the water. Um, I swam a little bit. You know, nothing crazy. I mean, for that long of a race, you're going to warm up. If it's a sprint try, I kind of want to be sweating already. But uh, for an Ironman, just get loose. Make sure your wetsuit doesn't have any issues. Uh, and then go get in the corral and get ready to go. Um, so for the most part, that worked out. Okay. Now you're standing in your corral, getting ready to go off. This is a rolling start. Where did you seed yourself at? I got in the one, like the 110 group. Got in the 110 group. Okay. So... Go ahead. Uh, what was your mindset at this point? So, you know, when I did my first one in Idaho, I had a good friend of mine that, that was pretty, at the time, he was very experienced at these, and he's, he's not a bad triathlete. He said to me, you know, if you ever feel good during the swim or the bike, slow down, you're probably going too fast. And so I, I try and go into the swim with the idea that I want to have a good swim, but I want to be steady. Uh, I had heard some people that had done the race previously talking about the fight to stay over that table in Beer Lake. And that you'd be better off staying left of that. So I, I tried to stay into the left where I was. And you, you hit few, a few people on the, the first loop, but you come around the second loop, it's, it's kind of thinned out some. So that, that seemed to work well. Uh, I did have a wetsuit issue that that, that that probably cost me six, seven, eight minutes. But, uh, you know, that's part of it. And uh, I noticed in the first five or six minutes that I felt like there was excessive water coming into my suit. You know, water gets in your suit. That's part of how the suit works and keeps you warm. Not that that water was cold. But uh, I, I felt like there was water going in my back. So I reached up and I, the flap, the Velcro flap had come undone. So I didn't think anything of it. So I just, I closed it, finished the first lap. And as I was running into the water for the second lap, I could hear water sloshing around. And you know, my brain didn't really, didn't register what it was until I got to about the same point on lap two. And I realized what had happened was my zipper had come down and worked its way down probably about three inches, which is not a... A ton of space, but what had happened was water was going into the suit, and the zipper had some of the lining of the wetsuit, that interior flap, had gotten stuck in the teeth. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So I couldn't close it. So I tried once with one hand to close it. Couldn't get it closed. And I swam a little bit more. Got frustrated. I said, all right, I'm putting two hands on this sucker. So by now I'm probably seven, I'm, the lake's probably seven feet deep. I put both hands on the lanyard on my wetsuit. And when you put both hands up, you sink. So I was standing on the bottom, yanking on this thing. It, it's not coming up. So I said, the heck with it. I'll just, I'll get through the swim. I'll be slower, but it, you know, I think I can finish it. And when I popped up, there was a lady in the kayak coming for me because I probably looked like I was drowning. So I had to hold her off and I'm good. I'm good. 
But, uh, you know, I, I closed the flap and I, I finished the swim. But I, when they stripped my wetsuit, I mean, there's always water in those sinks, but I think it almost drowned the guy that pulled it off. I mean, there was a ton of water in it. So I, I, I probably, it was more of a drag suit for the second lap, if not some of the first. But it, it wasn't, I, I planned on like an hour seven or eight. And I got, I got in that hour 10 group. I was like an hour 15. And, you know, that, that wasn't so bad considering I had a couple of stoppages in the water trying to play with it. So, I wasn't freaking out about that. I was kind of laughing. I was laughing at it a little bit. And I said to myself, well, that's the worst thing that's going to happen today. It's going to be a great day. And then, you know, we get to the rest of the story when the rain and the hail starts. But uh, <laughs> So you were uh, in the water playing with it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, thanks. I hear I got you. Yeah. See, on radio, this is a Seinfeld moment right oh, here. Oh, that's awesome. I was in the pool. I was in the pool. No, but uh, – <laughs> Yeah, it was, it was frustrating. What are you going to do, you know? Gotcha. Um, so now let's just uh, – I got to ask you like I've ever asked everybody else. The wetsuit strippers, Yeah, were they in the grass? <laughs> I I came out uh, – yeah, yeah. They were There's in a, the grass. I'm, I'm, so, I'm, not, I'm not picking up on something here. Were they in the grass? They were not in the grass. I don't know. Where they were, were in the sand. That's right. They were in the sand. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, they were making people sugar cookies before they got on the yeah, that's right. you know what, 112 mile bike ride. Listen, man, I had so many traumatic things happen that day. I blocked that part out, but you're right. They were in the sand. Yeah. They were in the sand. Yeah. And I, but you know, at that point you're just so ready to get the wetsuit off. You don't care. But yeah, I did notice that a little gritty running down to the, to the T2, T1. Yeah. That's one thing I wish they would have changed from last year, this year that I made sure I brought up to plenty of people. To say change this for especially the twentieth year anniversary, like come on, you can make yeah. this better. Yeah. So you're heading down to T one. How was T one for you? You get your bag, go in the tent. Or you yeah. T one uh, was it was fine. You know, I, I I probably was in there a little bit too long. Uh, I was was checking my my handy a little bit because uh, it, it did get somebody kind of swam over me once and I felt it. So I was playing with that a little bit. And by the time I, I got all my I got you, I see where your mind's going, man. I, I gotta keep it. <laughs> I used, to be a, I used to be an elementary school teacher, so, you know, they didn't pick up on stuff like that. But, uh, you know, I was trying to, to make sure that was fine. It was. By the time I got my shoes on and, and got my nutrition into my, my, into my suit, um, then, of course, you have a five-minute run. It seems like it takes five minutes to yeah, get from the, to down the transition. So I was probably in a tent for, like, eight or nine minutes, but it was, like, a 15-minute transition. Uh, but it felt fine. I, I left, and I, I felt good and headed out. And it really wasn't raining then. It looked like it was going to rain, but uh, we were okay for the first, you know, probably 10 miles of the bike. So T1 was fine. Okay. So mm-hmm. you head out of T1. There is a massive downhill past the ramp. So you go down a yep. little bus ramp, take a mm-hmm. horse, like a horseshoe basically. And then you yeah. take a right, then you go down this massive hill. Yeah. Were you prepared for the gearing there? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the massive hill for me going down it, I, you know, I just let it fly. So, you know, I was, that was easy. I didn't, my, my philosophy on some of these things, if, if, if I can go 25 or 30 miles an hour down without pedaling, I'm not pedaling. So I'll just go down the hill, let momentum pick it up, and I'll get in the right gear. Because after that, you know, you, you can pretty much start climbing for the first 10 miles. There are a couple of flattish sections, but, you know, it's up. So uh, the gearing was working fine. It wasn't raining. And, uh, you know, I got down that and started up the hills and I got to about the time I got out to the 10 mile marker, which is right about where you, you crest that first set of hills on the course. That's where the rain started. And that's, you know, you have a little bit of a flat section and then you start down the keen descent and the keen descent was hairy. Uh, 
the first loop. It was raining sideways, some 30-mile-an-hour crosswinds, probably a little bit more. I heard that Heather Jackson hit hail on that stretch. I didn't see hail, but I heard it was out there. We just had sideways, heavy rain. So uh, even sitting up on the bike, and uh, some people were taking chances. You know what? Uh, I, I set up. We're still going 40, 42, 43 down this thing and getting blown around quite a bit. Wow. Yeah. And with the disc, looking back on it, do you feel like the disc was the right move for you on this day? No, if I could do it again, the thing I like about the disc on uh, a course like that is it's got a, an aluminum brake track. So, you know, carbon wheels are great, but I still don't think they, they're awesome when you, when you got a brake going downhill, especially when they're wet. So I at least have one wheel that has some aluminum on it. Aluminum on it. I felt like I've got some grip. But overall, I, I don't think it hurt me, but I don't think it helped me. You know, I don't think I would have been any different running like a 60 in the back or probably a 60 in the back. If I'd have thrown my other round 60 rear on, I, I really think it would have been a similar experience in terms of speed, getting blown around a lot less. Okay. Now, the middle section of this bike ride from, say, miles 20 to 70, how was that for you? You know, that was frustrating because when the rain started, that's when my electronic shifting shorted out. So by the time I got down Keene Pass... Uh, made a left onto 86, which kind of starts that uh, there's like a mile and a half, two mile climb there that's kind of draws out. I, I, I couldn't shift gears. So I was stuck in, at that point, because we were coming down the pass, I was stuck in my 53 in the front and my 28 in the back. So I went up that with uh, a much bigger gear than I intended. And it definitely, I noticed uh, trying to keep my wattage down to you know the target level it was tough. To do that, I was at, you know, 60 RPMs, you know, 55 RPMs, and, and typically I'm, I'm more of a spinner when I ride anyway. So that hurts. I dealt with that or some semblance of shifting difficulty for the rest of the ride through that loop, through loop two, until the last 10 miles of loop two when everything kind of dried out, the sun came out. So um, I basically had a fixie or a two-gear bike for 90 miles of the ride. So e-shifting e went haywire. So that was frustrating. What was it like when you first realized that it wasn't shifting? Um, you know you what? You tried it, to shift and it didn't shift. Yeah, it, it hit the uh, rear derailleur button, nothing. And so it was frustrating, right? So you, you hop off, and that was I, – I think back on it because, you know, you, you trained so hard for that thing. I felt like I was in good shape coming off Montreal Blanc where I didn't taper and, and put up numbers that were similar to what I put up 10 years ago and had a lot more juice left in the tank. So I, I kind of went in thinking I could do 11 and a half, 12 hours. So my inclination was to fix it. Do, can I get off and, and reset this thing, you know, switch the batteries, uh, something. And so I probably had 40 to 45 minutes of just, you know, trying to repair the bike. Can I get off and get this thing to, 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 to do something? And it, it wouldn't. So it got to the point where it came back a little bit, but then, the right shifter, which is which controls the rear derailleur, was actually all it would do was move me from the small ring in the front to the big ring in the front. It wouldn't control the rear at all. So when it did shift, it would shift incorrectly. So not no panic. I mean, I've always kind of gone into things thinking, okay, you go in with goal A, which is to race it, and and, and sometimes things happen and you get goal B, right? So that day, uh, my goals got redefined, and honestly, I came through on loop two. I didn't see my wife uh, when I came through town. She saw me and she asked me why I looked so frustrated. Of course, she didn't know until I told her when I saw her on the run. But, uh, yeah, it's frustrating because you're thinking, okay, I, I don't know if I can shift at all. I don't know if I can get through another loop. 
and still have time to get through the marathon because I'm working so hard now. And I've, I've never been like a 10 hour guy, but typically I, I think I can, you know, I've done 12, 12 and a half. And so I've never had to think about, am I going to finish this bike in time to where I can get through the marathon? And I, I was thinking that a little bit. And then I was thinking, am I going to finish this thing at all on the bike course? So a lot goes through your head. For me, uh, it was as frustrating. I, I, I lucked out on some of the hills because I, I, I basically took the battery off the front derailleur. And for a while, I only shifted with the rear derailleur. And that, that worked a little bit. But then when I would, it would still go in and out. When I would get on the flats, where you can actually put it up in the 53, get down the middle of the rear cassette and, and get some, make up some time, you know, with a tailwind, 23, 24, 25 miles an hour. I, I was in the, the 39, 28. I was going 15. You know, so on the parts, the only part I got to really get any speed was that second keen descent where the roads were dry. And I just, you know, buried myself in the arrow bars and tucked and, and went. And, um, but, you know, that that's a very, with respect to the entire course, that's a very small part of it. Right. So Now, with this issue with your ETAP system, yeah. are you wanting to change systems because of this? You know what? I, I don't think so. I mean, I like it. it I, I've got it. Uh, it's at the shop now. They're looking at it. I think, you know, I, it's been there since last Wednesday when I got back. I kind of want to see how SRAM handles it. I did talk to another guy on the bike that looked like he was riding a nice bike and he was going really slow like me. And I was like, all right, man, what's your deal? He goes, I'm my ETAP stop shifting. I was like, hey, me too. So we talked about it for a while. So uh, there were some issues that day, but, you know, I've had that since it came out and it's been raced in the rain before and it did fine. So I don't know. I think it's just one of those crazy things that, you know, I drew the, uh, the black ball and the, and the lottery that day and I had to deal with it. But uh, I think Shimano had an issue probably three or four years ago at Lake Placid. The first year they had the uh, DI2, it was shorting out because it rained sideways. So you just never know. But I think the benefits of it, it's so nice because on a course like that where you're on the bullhorns a lot and you're climbing, to be able to shift without having to reach up to your arrow bars, I, I think that saves a ton of energy because a lot of times you get lazy. If you've got to reach up and shift on your arrow bar, a lot of times you just try and power through that. And uh, having it right there at your thumbs is a, is a nice convenience. Okay. Now, mentally – how did you tackle the later portions of the bike ride where all of the demons come out and play? Well, you know, um, maybe it's my, my football background. The mental stuff, I mean, it, you, I got thrown at so much in college, you know. We, I mean, I, I played at Wake Forest, and for the most part, we got our noses beat in week in and week out. And uh, you, you get thrown into a lot of high-stress situations. So I don't really freak out over that stuff. I mean, I was disappointed. But I'll tell you this, I was going to be a lot more disappointed if I didn't finish the thing. So, you know, when I came through in the second loop and realized I was going to have issues, I, I did. I changed my goal. I just got to finish this thing, number one for me, because I put a lot of time in training for it. And I could probably still finish with, you know, a, a 14, 14 and a half hour time. If I can do that, that, that won't be a complete loss. It's not what I want, but I'll take it. But I was really thinking about my wife who had sacrificed. I mean, she has to get off work. She works on the weekends. And she came out and watched me race. She hung out at Lake Placid all day. The last thing I want to do is not finish this thing, right? So uh, I kind of started picking places to take her back to on the next day. She really liked to hike, liked to be in nature. So that's a good course to sightsee. So I picked out a few spots, and the next day we drove back out. Um, I did stop and try to help somebody on the bike that was having a flat. And, uh, you know, it just it became not about a race at that point. Let's get through it. Let's Let's have fun because as disappointed as you are, you're going to be sick to your stomach, if you have to ride back in the tech support van. That makes sense. Yeah. Now, 
to talk a little bit about your nutrition plan here. You said yeah. that you're aiming for about 400 to 500 calories per hour. What does yeah. that look like for you? Uh, for me, I, I, I eat a variety of things when I train. So that way I can eat a variety of things when I race. I, I don't like to carry, like I, I like to train with what I know I can get on the course. So what I took on the course, just plain Gatorade. I had a bottle in my, my I had a, a, a fairly normally diluted bottle in my front bottle. And then on my down tube, which I have an arrow bottle, I had a pretty concentrated bottle just to get a good shot of sugar if I wanted. In my bento box and in my pockets, I had uh, cliff bars with almond butter in them and a couple of cliff shot blocks. So I would eat one cliff bar an hour, you know, maybe one and a half, depending on how I felt. It wasn't super hot. So uh, in years past, uh, you know, I might have eaten a little bit more, but, um, it seemed to work. I wasn't hungry. In fact, I, I wasn't super hungry when I finished, which probably means I, I, I did an okay job. I never cramped, which that was a good thing. I was getting enough salt. I did take uh, some Enduralites. I took two Enduralite tablets every hour just to ward off any kind of dehydration and, and cramps. But then again, it wasn't super hot, so I don't know that I needed that. Okay. Now, the last mile or two of the bike ride, are you doing anything to prepare you to start running? You know, I try and get an easier gear, and I could shift at that point. Um so I, um, I, you know, I'm not trying to, you're not going to win the race right there. So get your, your legs, get some blood flowing into your legs, get used to turning your legs over a little quicker. A lot of that's downhill, except for one little steep part coming to town, which is really quick. If you hit that right, you can roll right up it. And, uh, but I think you're thinking about the marathon, going over what you got to do in transition, what you're going to take off first, what you can put on, what you can, I, I took some stuff out of my pockets because I, I had bars in my pockets that I didn't get to. I probably had, honestly, on the bike, a little too much nutrition with me, but, uh, nothing that really hurt me, but I, I shed some of that for the run. Okay. Now, are you putting anything in your run special needs? I put a, you know what? The socks. I put a, a dry pair of socks just in case it was going to be really wet or in case I wanted an extra pair of socks with my shoes in case I was blistering. Didn't, didn't use it. Um, and I uh, ran right by the special needs bag and I was fine. So I was just eating what was on the course and uh, drinking what was on the course. You know, by that point you got some Coke, uh, a little bit of Red Bull, Gatorade, pretzels, bananas, oranges. And I grab a little bit of something every aid station. But uh, nothing, you know, like a grand feast or anything. Okay. Now, for the run, how were the first few miles of the run? You know, I, so they weren't bad. They're downhill, which I, I, I have a hard time running downhill when I'm when I'm cooked, right? So because you, you, you're, it's just different. So uh, you know, I probably was trying to operate under the assumption, okay, I just got to get my legs moving. And I, I probably was, I got down the hill, got down to the flat part. Uh, the Buffalo crew was there. They had a tent set up right there on the hill. So it was kind of nice to see some friendly faces. I got to see my wife and, and our friends that we were staying with. So uh, kind of gave her some inkling of, of, of why it took me seven hours to get back on the bike instead of what I told her, which was probably 545, you know, 550. Um, and uh, then just get to a rhythm. You know, I think for the first the first half marathon, I, I did okay. I mean, it, it I think at Montreblanc, I ran 155 overall, and I, I, it took me like two hours from the first part of this course. It's a much tougher course, and I was feeling good, but I think the extra work I did on the bike kind of set in on uh, probably about mile 15, and uh, I mean, I, I kept moving, but some of the hills after that, my plan was throughout the marathon, walk the aid stations. That's kind of always what I've done, get from aid station to aid station, because it gives you a mental step to get to, and... Uh, that that 30 seconds of walking can save you so much time on uh, just let your legs get a little bit of a refresher. So I was doing that on the second loop. I had to walk some of the uphills and those two big hills, that big hill coming back into town. 
you know, you're, you're walking that thing regardless. That's not too bad, though. It's not too bad, but, uh, you know, I've got a, a good friend of mine's, uh, he, he coaches some athletes. He didn't coach me, but, you know, he and I, we train together. We race for the same bicycling team. And then some of the things he's told me, he's like, listen, you know, you can run up that thing. You, you might run up at 30 seconds faster than you're going to walk up it, if you walk up it versus meander up it. And I, I walked up it. So, um, I don't know if I felt it made a difference, but that's what I did. That was my plan going in and I did. I don't think it hurt me uh, at that point. You know, I'm just trying to save the day. It's been a long day. And I'm trying to get through it without cramping because I know if I cramp, that's going to make whatever time I have left a lot longer. Right. Now, the middle section of the runs from, say, 12 to 18. How's yeah. Your, how's your mindset there? This is part of the part of where you're going out in the middle of the woods on Egypt. this ever-winding road that never yeah. has a turnaround. And then you finally find the turnaround out there in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Um, you know what? It's not bad. So at that point, I find you you start to make friends with your fellow racers. I, I probably met four or five people and ran along the way. I actually met met some of our teammates. I uh, met John McDonald on the run, uh, passed Damon Grimes uh, a couple of times, or we passed each other. So, But I ran with a few different people, you know, and it was you get each other through it. So it, it's kind of neat. At that point, you're trying to, to help support other people and, and just get through the darn thing. So um, I felt like the worst part of the course, honestly, was when you come back into town on the second loop, you come up the hill and you got to make the right. And it's only about a mile out through there, but man, that seems like it takes forever, right? Cause you can see the oval right there. You run right past it. And if you look at your watch, okay, it says I'm at 24 miles. Is it really a mile out to the end of this thing? And yeah, it is. So, uh, I think at that point mentally, you're so ready to be done. And to me, that took forever, but, um, uh, the second part to the ski jump, so it took a little while. The first part was fine. The first loop, because I didn't really, I didn't really know how long it took. Right? I didn't really. You're not really absorbing things at that point. Yeah, you know, and you're not really. I, I mean, I, I looked at what the course was. I mean, I knew where to go, but I didn't have it pinned down to the mile marker. It's when we turned and stuff like that. The second loop, I did. So I was looking for that 18 and a half mile marker, which is where you turn on that course. And by then, you know where things are, and it, it seems like it takes a little bit longer. Then you're just wiped out at that point. Okay. So what was the funniest thing that you saw on the run course? Well, uh, funniest thing, man, there was a guy that was moving pretty well that wore an orange bodysuit the entire run. And I don't know if he rode it on, if he wore it on the bike. I think he finished in 12 and a half hours. So he must be decent. But uh, I saw that guy booking it on the run. And, you know, it, it, did, it didn't get hot on the run, but it got hotter. It got up to 79, so I wouldn't want to be wearing a bodysuit. And then, uh, there, you know, there were always a couple of crazy uh, – Crazy folks out there in Speedos and things like that. We have a guy in the Buffalo Tri Club that brings a, a stuffed beaver and wears a Speedo and stands on the side of the road and has people rub the beaver when they go by. So that in and of itself is just nuts. I see it at every race. He works all the races in, in Buffalo, the local ones, and you see it and you never, you can never pass it without laughing. So it's, it's kind of nice. But uh, by that point, you're almost none of the stuff too. Wow. So the last few miles, how does that go for you? Uh, you know what? Relief. Uh, you, you know, it's uh, you're you're closed in on the finish. You, you feel good. Definitely ready to get off my feet. You know, I I don't I, I still don't think there's a pair of shoes that can prepare you for what the pounding your take. I mean, I, I'm a heavier guy anyway at 203 or four pounds, and uh, you know I, I'm fairly light on my feet for that big. But I, my, I was even asking one of the guys I was running with. It's like, okay, I got to ask you. Is it my shoes? Do they suck? Or do your feet just hurt like crazy right now? He goes, no, 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 my feet hurt. Because I feel pain in my feet in places I didn't know I had places. So 
um, you're ready to get off your feet, man. But at the same time, you're, it's still a great feeling. I, I, I tell people this all the time that haven't done them. And, and if you, if you ever think you can't go do one, just go watch the finish line. Right. I mean, you're, you're going to see people that, I mean, they, you can do this. You just got to be willing to put in the time. Right. I mean, for the most case, if you put in the time, you can complete one of these things. But I tell my dad all the time, and this is really hard for him to stomach because, like I said, I come from a football family, um, college football, you know, was a, was a scholarship athlete. And he's used to seeing this big, strong kid, which I'm not a kid anymore, and I'm not big and strong anymore. But I say, you know, Dad, after four years of college football, and I was lucky enough to get to play on a, on a nationally ranked team, I have a bowl ring, which I'm super proud of, but there is no better feeling in sports than running down that shoot at an Ironman. And that's why every time I say I'm not going to do another one, I kind of always cross my fingers because there, there's probably going to be another one at some point in the future, just maybe not every year. But it's it's a great feeling, you know, and I, it's hard to replicate. Yeah. You just learn so much about yourself. Now, the point where you get to where you can take that left and go to your second loop or <laughs> take that right to go into yeah. the oval, uh-huh. that feeling right there, how was that? That was awesome because I tell you, when I made the left for the second loop, one of the female pros went flying by me and made the right. And I was like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> I was like, she is absolutely off. I don't know who it was. But, uh, yeah, it's great, you know. And, and I really – I didn't know what the finish was like. I knew we finished kind of in the oval, but you don't know what to expect. You, you haven't done the race. So, uh, I almost – You don't want to ruin that for yourself by knowing what to expect yes. either. You want that to be the mystery. You don't want to see the finish line set up yet. You don't want to, like, have that in your mind. You want to come around the corner and be like – Wow. Yes. You want to open that box right then and save that moment for that. You're right. And the other part of that too is you're you're so close. I kept looking for, okay, they're gonna run us out and back somewhere. There's gonna be a loop up a steep hill. It's gonna be like a cruel, unusual torture punishment. But no, you you run into that thing and it's it's great. You know, there it's lined with it's mob with people on both sides. You got the boards up, you know, and you're on that Olympic venue. And the only thing I can liken it to was a friend of mine years ago went over and did uh Challenge Roth. And I guess there's a hill on Challenge Roth yep. that you climb like. And it's it's very Tour de France-like. There are fans right out on the road. That's kind of what it felt like, you know? And uh, it's it's just a neat feeling. And for me, I mean, I've done – that's four, but I've done three previously. And I think Mike Riley had been the announcer at every one of them. But in every other one, I came through with a group of people. And I never got the Kevin Smith, you are an Iron Man. So – when I went through, I got it this time, and I had never told my wife that story, and I was sharing that with her. And I guess one of the, I guess uh, Eric and our and our team posted that on Facebook, that um, you know he got the video of me crossing, and that was the only part I really, I mean, like I, you expect to finish it right? unless you get hurt or unless something happens that you really can't finish mechanically. I knew I was going to finish it, but uh, I don't know. That that's just kind of a neat thing, and I think that's part of the experience. It's but I've still been really satisfied. Yeah, but it's really kind of cool because he, he's so iconic in the sport and. You know, that's, that's come to be a big part of finishing one of those things. I don't have the tattoo yet, though. Me neither. Now, Me neither. once you get on the red carpet, did you stop and just enjoy the few moments that you had on the red carpet? Or did you, you run as fast as you could down that thing? I, I didn't run as fast as I could. I ran. Um, you know what? For me, it was, it was, it was kind of a different finish. Uh, we had um, a member of our truck, Fry Club in Buffalo, that was scheduled to be there and had raced it before. He passed away like two days after Montreal Blanc. And, you know, we had his number and everything. So, so many of the Buffalo tribe people uh, wore armbands with his number on it. And so I actually carried his number across. And that was, it was kind of cool. So it, it, that was a big motivator for me as well. And just getting through the darn thing. Because I figured, you know what, Joe would, 
Joe would love to be here and he's probably watching us. So, uh, you know, that, that was important, but no, I, I don't know. I, I've never been a big, that was always my knock in, in college when in football, I was never a celebrator. You know, I, I think you, I expect to be there. I'm not saying it's a good thing, but, uh, I could probably celebrate more, but I was an offensive lineman, man. You know, if, if somebody knew who I was, it was bad, right? It's either I got called for holding or I got my quarterback killed. So I got used to living in anonymity and, um, I just kind of go through, get myself a fist pump, and go to the pizza buffet. Okay. So yeah. after you cross the finish line, you go to the pizza buffet, then what? Uh, then you have to actually get up from the pizza buffet. Uh, I found that very difficult. And this is something that my wife and I have to work on. We we didn't – she swears we talked about the post-race plan and where we're going to meet. I don't remember that. So – and I guess the problem was that we might have talked about it in the drive over to the race that morning. And, you know, at that point, you're not listening nope. to anything. You are in your mind already. So I got my bags, went, sat on, went outside, walked out. The only way you can go out thinking, okay, she's been to these. She'll figure this out. And that's where I had to kind of spill out. And I had my, my gear bags, which are kind of heavy. You got your helmet, shoes, you got three or four of them. So I sat against the fence from maybe 930 until 11, <laughs> waiting for my wife to find me. And what, what do they say if you're lost in the woods? Stay put. Right. So I stayed put. And sure enough, at 11 o'clock, I saw her walk by and uh, I grabbed her. So we have to plan that part better. But I just sat there and, and watched people come through uh, right before they entered the chute. Wow. So yeah. how was your recovery process from this race? I've forgotten how long it takes to recover. I'm still kind of groggy. Uh, took three days off completely. Then uh, uh, Friday, actually, I guess I took four days off completely. Friday, I went for an easy swim. Uh, Saturday, really did some core work, stretching. And yesterday I got on my bike, my road bike, my tri bike still being looked at, but um, I rode probably a couple hours, but you know, we're talking zone one, zone two, avoided the group ride altogether because while well, I love to go mix it up with the roadie crowd, it's, it's probably not a good day for me to be doing that because you just don't have a lot of snap left in your legs right now. Right. Now, looking back on it, how well prepared for this race do you think you were? I think without the issues, I, I felt pretty good. I mean, I... I think flat course, and I, you know, I was basing what I my goal time off some like Louisville, which is hilly but not mountainous, right? It's rolling, hotter, and then Coeur d'Alene, which is kind of similar. The run's got like one hill on it, but and the course is it's a rolling bike course, but it's not it's not a climbing course. I was thinking I could come into this and maybe do twelve hours, and I, I think I could have done that without the issues. I mean, I I was tired when I finished. But even with the, I figured the bike cost me 30 minutes on the run, maybe 40 minutes. I, I probably would have been 4.15 on the run off a, off a better bike. And uh, I would have been right there. So I, I don't know if I would change a lot in training. I, I might get out and maybe do a couple longer longer bricks and maybe one other long run. But honestly, I felt good going into it. I, I didn't overtrain, which has been a fault of mine in previous years because I, I like to go hard. I like intensity and, and you you need to do some of that for Ironman, definitely. But um, I, I think I was I was pretty good. So uh, maybe try and get outside a little bit more. And it might have been helpful to actually get to the course and ride. But then again, it's a five-hour drive, six-hour drive. So that's not that's easier said than done. Right. So what's something that you learned about this race that you'd want to pass on to someone who hasn't done this course before? Uh, you know what? Never panic. You're going to have your race goal. And uh, don't be afraid to redefine that. I mean, do everything you can to hit it. But things are going to happen in any of these things. It's such a long race that if you let it get in your head, it might derail you from even finishing. And I think that's got to be the worst feeling, doing all that work, getting to the venue in 
than letting something get in the way. Hey, if you finish in 16 hours and 59 minutes, guess what? You're, you're still an Ironman and, and never feel bad about finishing one of those things. It's such a long day. I mean, enjoy the process, but don't be afraid to, to have plan B because if you don't, you're going to need it at some point. Right. And uh, I think that's, uh, that was definitely what I took away from it and what helped me. That makes sense. So you had to give yourself grace along the way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's, um, I read a quote by Peter Reed once when, you know, he, he was winning Kona every year and he said, you know, it's, it's weird. It's, it's so physically demanding that it's ironic that it usually comes down to who's the smartest or who doesn't. It, it, basically it's a mental game, right? I mean, you, you have to kind of sometimes put the physical part aside and, and figure out ways to solve your problem to, to get that next step forward, whatever it may be. But, uh, I, I, I carried that and I think it, it, it helped me on, on Sunday because there were definitely times where I felt like, geez, I'm, I'm going to be rolling at you know, 14, 15 hours. I mean, I, I've done these before. I know I can finish. I came to race it, but then you start thinking about, gosh, I, I don't want to be that. I can't, I can't be the guy that doesn't roll in and finish the thing. And that happens. I get it, but do everything you can to avoid it. Barring injuring yourself for a longer period of time. That's where you got to make the call, but I wasn't injured. So whole different story. Okay. How could Ironman have made your race experience better? You know what? Um, <laughs> make them less expensive. No, uh, they, they do a good job. And I will say that, that they are expensive and, and they're, the time's prohibitive, but uh, they've addressed that a little bit. I, I think the check-in process for those part was really good. The bike check-in would have been better, could have been better. The only thing I would say that really can make it better for the competitors is maybe keep spectators off the beach until people are in the corrals. Because the way they're running it right now, if you're trying to get in that you know, 110 pace group, if you're not in the corral, Basically, when the pros go off, you're not going to get in. They've got an opening the size of a, a hotel room door, and they're trying to filter all the athletes through. So what happened was one of the volunteers actually figured out that we were there were some faster swimmers that were trying. Not that 110 is necessarily fast, but it's faster than two minutes uh, or two hours, and, and they let us hop the fence. And uh, without that, you know, you're stuck in the back, and nobody wants that. I mean, the, the people that are swimming two hours don't want the 110 or 115 or 120 people swimming over them. And it's just a smoother process. If they would keep people off the beach and kind of open up that, that corral area, get all the athletes in, and then maybe let people come down, it might be a little more efficient. I heard a lot of complaints about that. And as somebody that's not great at climbing fences at this point in life and having to jump a fence, it was... Uh, right before you swim, 2.4 miles. Right. In, in a wetsuit, and and you know it's not there aren't steps over the fence, so don't you basically, rip your wetsuit at this point in time. Right, don't don't rip your wetsuit. Uh, that, that would have been great, um, but uh, and it's not the easiest thing to climb over because you know the the the, the, the rails are X, they're X's in the middle, they're not like horizontal, so there's no horizontal place to put your foot. You've got to kind of step up and get your foot up on the top of the fence and vault over. And you're we had fellow competitors that were help, helping catch us and get us in, but uh, that was the only thing. But you know what? It's small potatoes. You got that many people there. It's there's no way it's going to be perfect. They they do a really good job, and every time I leave one, I'm always amazed that you, you do get what you pay for in the Ironman races. They do a good job. Okay. So, for first timers, what advice would you give them for the race, or just for that race in particular, or just in general? Race. You know what? Um, I think people, and I know we have a lot of swimmers on the team that, that and I think the swim's important. I think people stress over the swim. Uh, I probably put more time into the swimming than they do in the biking and the running. Uh, I, I think you definitely can't bike too much in training for that race because so much of that race is getting off the bike in condition to get through 26 miles during your marathon. You start to swim. Most cases, you're going to have a wetsuit on. You're going to float. 
you're fresh. You know, I don't think too many people are, are having the issues in the swim, but the mental stress that comes from it, I don't think it's in people. I would overbike and make sure you're getting frequent runs, probably, and don't neglect that long run, especially in that last six-month build before you get to get to the race. Okay. We covered a lot about your race. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? No, man. Uh, you know, it was, it was a trying day, a lot of obstacles, but it was fun. I, I wouldn't. I'm glad I did it. I'm, I'm glad I put the time in. It wasn't the, the speedy result I'd hoped for, but uh, it was, you, you never feel bad about finishing. And, and just being out there, I, I know a lot of people that would have loved to have been there and couldn't be. So just feel fortunate you can do it and move on to the next one. Okay. So what's next for you? So this season, just short ones. You, you know, I, I'm going to do a couple of sprints maybe next week and then finish out the season uh, with a sprint try and, and, uh, and, kind of South Buffalo thought about doing a stage race uh, on the bicycling scene this weekend, but I'm just not recovered. There's just no way it's not a big stage race. It's three stages, but uh, I was thinking about maybe next year trying to focus on USCT nationals and maybe pick a good 70.3 and uh, work towards that. Probably no iron distance next year. Give my wife a break from all the, uh, the crazy training. Okay. So what races are on your bucket list? Bucket list. I would love to do the Norseman. Uh, I mean, if I, if I get somehow got into the Norseman lottery, even I, I would go, uh, Ironman Switzerland, I would totally go to that one, you know, Hawaii definitely, but I, I'd probably rather go to Switzerland just because I love that part of the country and I, I love the Alps, um, Norseman the same way. I think any of those would be good. I, I think for, I'm sorry, what are you going to say? No, I, the, the bucket listing, I, I like, I'd rather find a, a destination locale with some friends. It's always better when you have a group. That makes sense. Yeah. So how can athletes follow you? You know what? Um, at Tri Smitty, Twitter, uh, at Tri Smitty for Instagram, which I'm getting more prevalent in now. And then Facebook, it's Tri Smitty. So, uh, Kevin, it's, it's pretty easy. But uh, occasionally I'll post something here or there, a nugget. Yeah. Well, Kevin, yeah. it's been great talking to you. And I only have one more question for you. Wait on me. What is your definition of a perfect race? Ooh that you feel you left everything on the course and you could not have done anything differently. So that's going to have a lot of different results. But uh, that was how I walked away from last Sunday feeling decent about it. And I was like, you know, could done anything differently, had nothing left in the tank, and uh, I'm not going to feel bad about that. And I think if you do that, you'll, in most cases, you're going to have pretty good days. Wow. And- were you going to continue? Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, you know, we do it for fun. And, uh, you know, for most of us, we're not getting paid to do it. So don't get too caught up in, I mean, try to do your best, but gosh, just enjoy being able to do it because it's, it's a great sport. Wow. It really is. Well, Kevin, I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your experience about your experience at Lake Placid. I've enjoyed hearing it. I look forward to following you in the future, and I can't wait to see what unfolds next year for you. Hey, man, thanks for having me on, Terry. I appreciate it. And for the flexibility. We'll hey. be crazy in a few days. Part of it. You have a good day, okay? Yeah, you too. Bye. Thanks for tuning in today. I hope you were able to learn something from today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please take a minute to leave a review on iTunes or share it with a friend. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you'd like to see pictures from this athlete's race, learn more about who I am, what I'm doing, or be on the show yourself to share your story, check out my website at CoachTerryWilson.com. Until next time, continue the pursuit.